Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, Amen. Um, we decided this year, just um, for the benefit of all of us, to ask uh, um, uh, one of the members of the congregation to summarize for us the readings of the day. Um, and so uh, today... Um, uh, we'll call on our sister Marina to come and summarize the readings of, of the day for us in just a few words to kind of help us to see, kind of to try to help us to see the, uh, the forest from the trees. Like sometimes we read the readings and they're full of lots of beautiful things, um, but I get caught up in underlining things and this and that. Sometimes I have a little bit of difficulty, you know, getting the theme of, of the day. So Marina will enlighten us with that. There's also hope 
and the readings cover the source of hope, which is a promise that God will always keep a remnant of the children of Israel or the people that worship him. And we see this in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah is mourning for being alone and God tells him 7,000 other knees have not yet bowed to the idols. And in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, unless we had a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the readings not only give us the hope that there will be a remnant forever, who follow and worship God continuously, but they also underline some of the characteristics of those people who choose to worship God, who choose to answer the call. And you can find when you read the readings that oftentimes those characteristics are outlined in Proverbs um, or in the Gospels. And so they share and say that those who choose to be part of this remnant, prepare themselves for testing and temptation, are patient in times of humiliation, are able to discern the times, they speak the truth, they're not afraid to confess their sins, they don't rely on their wealth, but they follow, and they don't follow their own desires blindly. They accept rebuke and correction because it makes them wiser. They multiply their talents, and they feed the hungry, satisfy the thirsty, clothe the naked. In other words, they have compassion on their fellow brethren. They live in order to improve the lives of others, not just seeking their own pleasure and the betterment of their own life. And so, if we summarize that all very quickly, today the readings begin with a call, whether you choose to obey the Lord or not. And all of the readings created a very clear separation today between the sheep and the goats between those who will choose to obey the Lord and those who won't. But the division created is not created by the Lord, but it's created by our choice and our position on where we stand in terms of answering this call, if we obey the Lord, if we follow his commandments. Thank you, Marina. That was uh, the ideal um, segue into this talk. All the summaries that have that uh, have been given by our brothers and sisters and th those to come are are excellent, but um, So we started off by saying we're going to do a series this Holy Week on delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And on the first night, we said that um, we're not going to spend too much time on the desires of your heart, but we did distinguish very quickly that Saint, the, give the distinction that St. Augustine gives um, that there's a very big difference between the desires of my heart, the heart of the, of the human created in the image and likeness of God, and between the desires of my flesh. Um, and because of this distinction, you know, and we're going we're gonna to allude to it, but we're not going to make a big fuss of it. Um, we're really going to focus on delighting ourselves in the Lord. But we're going to ask ourselves this whole every night, is he worthy that we should really delight ourselves in him? And today, you know, he really puts us to the test. You know, he really, really does put us to the test. And Marina alluded to it. And probably the most, I'm summarizing, I'm, gonna, I'm going real fast through the first 10 slides because they're just, a, they're just, they're just a, Slides from yesterday and the day before, right? So the, probably the most um, attractive feature 
of the character of God and the feature that probably reveals his character, who he is the most, is his grace. So we use these words in Christianity, this Christianese, you know, this language we speak that we, nobody understands. Sometimes we don't understand either. So what is grace? Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy is when you get what you don't get what you do deserve. So they're slightly different. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Mercy is when you, you get pulled over by a cop for speeding. You were indeed speeding and they give you a warning. That's mercy. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Grace is when you get a second chance. Grace is when God takes the brokenness and the fallenness of our humanity and elevates it to the highest place in heaven. And we're going to talk all about that. So we figured yesterday, probably the most reasonable place to begin was in the beginning. And in the beginning, God created the, the world and he created everything. And we spoke yesterday at length about how God was under absolutely no obligation to create anything at all. In fact, he created us out of non-existence and brought us into existence. And really, really, God doesn't owe us anything. And he created us. And then he created light. And then he created all these amazing, beautiful things. I think we talked about 350,000 species of beetles. Like when God does, he does in abundance. And he created so much abundance, so much overwhelming abundance, more than you could possibly even think about for one second. You would fill more than a lifetime if you thought about every single thing God created for one second. You probably wouldn't have time to think about everything just for a second. He created so much. And then he put humanity in the center of all this. And he gave us dominion over it. He said, it's all for you. And his gifts were so incredibly abundant, above more than we know to think or ask. And he gave us one command. Like, look in the balance. Yesterday we did the balance between the gift and the command. You know, sometimes nowadays, uh, the other day I was at this um, hiring conference thing. I was trying to, I don't know anything about business, so I was trying to learn how to hire, right? You know, so um, so anyway, so I was at, at this conference, right? And the, the speaker puts, asks a question. He says, how many people here are doing the job description they were hired for. And literally like two people put their hands up and they were hired like the day before yesterday. Nobody does anymore what they were hired to do. They hire you and then they decide what they want you to do, right? And then they add some more on and they see what more they can get out of you. And that's, that's how the world, that's how the world works, right? They want to see, the world wants to get what they can out of us. God was the opposite. Right? So all of a sudden, you are hired to do this. You are hired to do this. And now you're doing this for the same pay. Right? So the wage is dollar per hour. So dollar per work. So the more work you do, the lower your wage goes. And you start off and you're like, man, this is really good money for this. And by the end of two months, you're like, man, they don't pay me enough. Why? Because they're asking more and more and more of you. God is the opposite. He gives and gives and gives. And the denominator is one. One command. Just one thing. 
He just asked one thing and he asked of it for our own good and we talked about that yesterday and we're not going to go on and on. And why did he bother with all of this? Because of the multitude of his compassions towards us, the, the, the abounding of his love. Compassion is sharing in the suffering. He was sharing in our suffering before he had brought us out of non-existence into existence because this is why he brought us out of non-existence. And we talked all about this yesterday. And we're quoting from the liturgy of St. Gregory, right? And we concluded yesterday that it is for him and through him, it's sorry, from him, from the Father, and through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for him, the Holy Trinity, that all things are. Everything is for him. So when I live for my job, or I live for my relationships, or I live for money, or I live for this, or I live for that, I'm living for nonsense. None of that is going to give me back the way God is going to give me. And God didn't create me for it. So I always feel like a square peg trying to fit myself in a round hole because that's not what I was made for. And St. Augustine says, and we talked about that, that the first night that our hearts are wrestling until they find their rest in you. And this is all recapping. This is all, sorry, I'm speaking quickly. This is all just recapping yesterday. And we kind of concluded by saying, we say thine is the glory over 5,100 times this week, right? If you do the math. More than 5,100 times we say thine is the glory. But the moment I step out of this church, I start living as mine is the glory. So is it thine is the glory or is it mine is the glory? Am I living for his glory or am I living for mine? And that's the question we left you with yesterday and we left off asking ourselves, who is on the throne? Who is on the throne? Whose, whose, image, whose image is in the... is in the... is in the altar there? God's or mine? The altar of my heart. Who? Me or God? That was all yesterday. And we decided that we need to have a paradigm shift. If we're going to try to understand a little bit, like a little bit of God, we're going to need to kind of shift our thinking to try to understand God as how He has revealed Himself in Scripture, in the church, in, in, in the lives of the saints, and so on. Right? And I kind of asked for this concession of you all that I often ask for when I have apologetic conversations with people, conversations about faith with people who believe and don't believe. Oftentimes I ask for this concession. I ask that we accept everything that every religion says about itself as true for the purposes of discussion. For example, Islam says that Muhammad is the prophet. Okay, so Muhammad is the prophet. We're not going to argue the external validity of the of the of the of the premises of, of these religions or faith systems or philosophies. So we're just gonna accept them so we can try to understand each other and then we're gonna see how they hold up, how they match, how they compare, how they contrast and so on. So we're gonna I'm gonna ask you to just for a moment believe what God says about himself in Scripture. But can we really believe in a good God who is wrathful? I mean, I mean, the, the readings today are all centered around this theme of the day of the Lord. And he's going to come 
and he's gonna he's gonna do all kinds of things from 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 some of the readings behold the storm of the lord wrath has gone forth a whirling tempest it will burst upon the head of the wicked sounds sounds violent it sounds angry it sounds but this isn't the uh, this isn't the nice Jesus with flowing hair that's just you know pats everybody on the back and encourages everybody that we're expecting. This is I don't know. And you know we we, we talked about in the first um, night the introduction how Bishop Marcion I think I said that right in the first and second century came to the conclusion that that the God of the Old Testament, the deity claimed to be in the Old Testament, is certainly not the God of the New Testament. And that at best, at best they're different, but most likely he never existed. And the God of the New Testament appeared, revealed himself in the New Testament alone in Christ. And he just kind of didn't believe that his teachings, that's a heresy, his teachings were rejected. He refused to repent and he was eventually excommunicated. In Nahum, read today, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What kind of God is this? Keeps wrath for his enemies. He's, he, he's keeping a list and checking it twice. And if we look at Romans, it says no one has got done good. No, not one. That means that everybody's names are written on this list. What kind of bloodmonger is this? And we quoted some you know, famous writers, Richard Dawkins, uh, on the first night. You know, to that, to that effect. Who can love a father God who's full of wrath? You know, one of the biggest plagues of this 21st century is the lack of fatherhood. Is the lack of fathers in the flesh that really are real icons to us of our father in heaven. I'm not a professional counselor, but I would say at least half, if not more, of the people that I sit with, this is bound to come up within our first three conversations. I have a great dad. I quote him in a lot of my sermons and stuff, and I've appreciated him more and more as, as I've aged. I don't think he's changed much, but I've grown a little bit to realize what a, what a wealth of love and wisdom I've lived with. And my dad doesn't sound anything like this. So is my biological father, Meher Butros, a better father than God? Uh, if he was here, he would have jumped up and shouted at me and said, <laughs> shut your mouth before lightning strikes you or something. Right? People have, a, people, have a, people have a lot of difficulty with this God. People have a lot of difficulty with this God. And so far, who can blame them? Mahatma Gandhi has problems with something else. He says, I love your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. See... Jesus is actually really popular. There's, this is, there's a bishop who I met during my priest training, my 40 days, 
who, uh, my 40 days of priest training, who said something to me. He said something to me. He said, he, he was trying, we were like new priests and we were really worried and anxious about how we're going to do this priesthood thing and it's a big responsibility and all this stuff. You got all these people's souls in your hands. Like you're basically carrying eternity of hundreds of people on your shoulders. You know what I mean? It, it can be crushing if you think about it that way. So he's trying to make it simple for us. He goes, look, it's actually really simple. Everybody knows that Jesus is amazing. Everybody knows Jesus is the best. Everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. You don't believe me? You're going to tell me, but this is in Egypt. You're going to tell me Muslim fanatics don't like Jesus. And, uh, you know, atheists don't like Jesus. And uh, this and that, they don't love Jesus. And this is just like, no. Look, look, look at what their scriptures say. Look at what, ask them. Do you have anything against Jesus? They'll tell you no. It was once said, Gandhi said, about Jesus. He said, the most beautiful words ever spoken are the Sermon on the Mount. They are so beautiful, they could have only been spoken by God himself. Gandhi's problem, and most of society's problem, and the world at large, is not Jesus. But what the devil does is this. This is a bishop telling us this. He runs around whispering rumors in our ears, telling us... Ah, but Jesus is this. But did you read Matthew 23? Oh, two fries, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. Oh, you, blah, blah, blah. Did, you, did you hear those? Right? Yeah, yeah. He said some nice things too. But he said some pretty nasty things. Right? And the devil goes around whispering in our ears that Jesus is actually not that great. But actually, I, I actually agree with that bishop. You know, that I rarely get into a conversation with somebody who hates the teachings of Jesus. They might find the teachings of Jesus, whether they accept him as son of God and savior of the universe and all of that or not, they rarely find something in the teachings of Jesus that they really don't like. Like, maybe Jesus takes it a step too far, but they can rationalize that, you know, maybe he's exaggerating to prove a point. If a man looks at a woman to lust for her, he's already committed adultery in her heart. Like, who doesn't do a double take here and there? You know, maybe, you know, so, so, right? Like, but, so what do people not like? Like, like, what do people not like then about, about the church and about, it's the church, and it's this wrathful father. The Holy Spirit, nobody knows who the Holy Spirit is. Again, nobody can get their head wrapped around it. So nobody has an opinion, you know. I just don't know enough. You know, it's kind of why I don't vote, right? I don't know enough about any of the parties, sorry. I try to vote. I try every year. I don't, I'm not against it. You should vote. I should vote. We should all vote, right? Um, but, um, you know, I just don't know enough to, to say anything. So that's kind of like the Holy Spirit. I just don't know enough, right? But this father, I don't know. And Christians, they kind of stink. Jesus is okay, but he keeps company with these people. I don't know. You know, I don't know about them, right? The number one objection to Christianity is why do bad things happen to good people? Why does a good God allow pain and suffering? Where is he? What's he doing? Why do children have cancer? Why are there child soldiers? Why are there over 300,000 children worldwide that are exploited in armed conflicts? 72 million children worldwide are out of school. More than 150 million children live on the streets. That's one in five children children are homeless. More than 240 million children are put to work and deprived of the experience of childhood. One-sixth of the world's population suffers from hunger. That's 300 million children 
will go to bed hungry today or already went to bed hungry today, whatever time zone you're in. What kind of world is this? What kind of world do we live in? You're going to say, Father John, it's not life. the world isn't just children. What about elder abuse? What about poverty? Get this map. Look at this map. I don't know if you can see it really clearly. Okay, all you need to see really clearly is this map is showing how many people live on under $1.90 US a day. That's like $2, basically a coffee, okay? So the darkest pink is over 50%. The, the, the shade just a little bit lighter than that is 25 to 50%. You get the picture. You get the picture. We've got it really good. I can buy four coffees in a day. That's more than, that's more than, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying like, I'm, like I'm, I'm a good or bad person for buying four coffees a day. I'm just saying, like, it's not fair. It's not fair. When someone comes and says to me, life is not fair, I don't argue with them. Shrug my shoulders. Yeah, sure, life is not fair. Guaranteed life is not fair. And we want justice. We want justice. When will this madness end? What if it was your daughter, your son? What if it was your father, your mother? What if it was you? Think of it this way. Various people saying, you know, how can anyone say that God is good? How can anyone say that God is good? Right? I have a slide later anyways. Picture it this way. This injustice is rampant. It's rampant. Picture it this way. It's like if there was a serial criminal, put, the, put substitute in whatever word you want for criminal, loose in your neighborhood, at large in your neighborhood. So all of these horrors have struck all these different people. Well, when are they going to strike? When are they going to strike me? And who's going who's gonna to stand up for me? What's God's response to all of this? How does God answer all of these horrors? Now, again, to, to, get, to be able to see how God is actually really good, how God is actually really good, we're going to need to go back to what we said yesterday. That for Him, it's for Him that we were created. It's for His glory that we were created. When you Google image justice, you get a variety of images of the scales, you know, right? That's because the Greek word for justice, ziakosini, the, the image for it is scales. And because ziakosini means to divide in equal parts. So it means to, to, to bring equality. That's what justice means. And until this day... The, the image of justice is the, is the blindfolded woman carrying the scales, blindfolded because she, she's impartial. She, it's not because of your, your height, your, your gender, your uh, ethnic heritage, your right, that the, judge, the judgment is based on the action and the scales to render equal parts. 
Okay, to get our head wrapped around this, we're going to have to realize that God is not a judge in the way we understand a judge to be. God is a very different kind of renderer of justice. Okay, so I'm not going to use the word judge because the judge is the person who renders justice, right? But we're so fixed in our mind that, like, when you, like, again, I Google image judge, I get Judge Judy, right? You know, so God is not Judge Judy, okay? But God is not a judge in this sense at all, at all. It's a very different kind of judge, but he is a judge. So instead of calling him a judge, we're just going to call him, call him like a renderer of justice. Is that fair? Okay, we'll call him that, right? He's more of a judge in the sense that he justifies. You know, on your word processor, when you're typing up, you know, you, you know, a letter, an essay, an email, whatever, you have the, the option of all of the text, you know, being on the left margin, or all the text being on the right margin, or the text being centered, or the text being justified. Right? If the text is justified, and that's the little icon on your word processor there, right? And it shows that the text goes to both ends. What does that mean? It means that it means that it's it's perfectly straight. And you'll see in some of my slides I've justified the text. Some of it it's like centered, so it's like curvy, right? And some of it it's just it, it fills the entire box, you know? It's straight, right? It's also the same. It's the same word that's used for a right angle triangle. It's 90, it's exactly 90 degrees, it's straight. So something was like a skew, like you drew a line with a pencil, right? And then it, it got straightened out, it got realigned. You know when the alignment in your car is off? You know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you're you know, you, you have that, that, the biggest problem of my life, I wanna eat the McDonald's ice cream and the burger, and I don't know which to eat first, and I have to drive with my knees, right? And then all of a sudden, you let go, I let go of the wheel for a second, and the car, you know, shifts into the next lane. Why? Because my alignment is off, right? So the car, the car's alignment is off, so it has a tendency to shift a little bit, right? Our alignment, alignment is, so God is the realigner. He's the realigner. He's, he's the one who renders those, those equal parts. Like something is askew, so he, he straightens it out. It's not quite, it's like 92 degrees, so he makes it just right, 90. God likes it, and that's why the title of this talk was Grace That's Just Right. Grace That's Just Right. I love cooking, and I've learned the hard way that when you add salt, you should do it slowly because you want it to be just right. I remember my grandmother saying this to my mom and I overheard, it's too young to care at the time, but for some reason it registered. It registered that you can, when you add salt to food late in the cooking process, this is like savory food, obviously. Um, if you add it slowly enough, the, 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 the steam makes the flavors explode at a certain mo moment. Like, I'm not a chemist, but I think it has something to do with the, the, the dissolved salts changing the boiling point or something. And that's when you know you've added just enough salt. Just right. God is the realigner, straightens things out. So here's where I was saying, imagine if there was some serial rapist or serial murderer or serial kidnapper or serial in your neighborhood, 
Like if there was a serial rapist in my neighborhood, I wouldn't let I wouldn't let my wife and daughters out of the house. I would this, I would that, I would you know, I would or maybe I would I don't know, maybe we would just move somewhere else until they. I don't know what I would do. I've never thought about it, right? But it's terrifying. It's it's terrifying, right? It's terrifying that there's so much evil in the world. It's terrifying. You think our world is bad? Our world is nothing. You think this is bad? These horrors that I've been listing out here, and I cut out a bunch of them for the sake of time and for the sake of, 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 your, of, of keeping this PG, you know, right? Listen to what God says in Genesis 6 in Noah's time. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Three superlatives to say that God saw that humanity was evil all around. Read that again to yourself. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Other versions say all the time. When we think of evil, we don't have a clue of the kind of evil that God put up with. And this was the prophecy of the ninth hour. And it says that God told Noah to build the ark when he was a hundred and some years. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? When did the rain come? How old was Noah? 650 years old. Now, I don't know if their years were like our years, whether he was building this ark in the middle of the desert in Iraq for 500 years. I don't know if their years were like our years, but dude, if somebody was at Dundas Square, you know, or in the middle of the desert, okay, building a boat for five days, it would have caught my attention. For five months, it would have certainly caught my attention. After a while, you know, first you think to yourself, this person is just, I don't know, they're acting out or I don't know what they're doing, right? And then after a while, like after a year or two or three, I mean, this guy must be serious, you know? And he's calling the people to repent. And they don't. And then how long did it rain before all the animals were in the ark and they closed the door of the ark? Seven days. This is somewhere that gets no rain at all most years. And some years they get a day of rain. It rains for seven days straight. And this guy's been calling for 500 years, telling them there's going to be a flood. And then it starts to rain. And he tells them, come in the ark. And everybody laughs. Evil, like we've never imagined. Patience like we've never seen chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. Now, I have a question for you. I have a question for you, and I have a question for God. Was it right for God to wait that long? Because those serial rapists and those serial murderers, they were there. They were part of that society. And God waited 500 years for them to repent. But they didn't. Like, they catch the serial rapist after the first 
event after the after the he's not sorry I guess it's his third you know third victim and they tell him we're going to wait on you 500 years before we're going to see if you're going to change if 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 someone had committed any crime at all against you or your family and they, they make it to court and they get there and the judge sits and, they, and they, they're, they're found guilty of the crime and the judge says, you know what, but I think he might change. She might change. Let's keep it gender neutral. I think we should give him a, another chance. How long are you going to wait, judge? Well, I don't know, 500 years? What would you say? You'd be outraged. You'd be outraged. See, we're outraged that God flooded the world when we should really be outraged that He waited so long to do it. God had a lot of mercy. A lot of mercy. And a lot of patience. And a lot of patience. But eventually, He needed to do that realignment. Why? Why? Because he needed... Was Noah that important? Why don't he just put Noah out of his misery too? You know? Why not strike Noah with lightning and flood the rest of them? Then Noah gets a quick out and everybody else drowns. Right? I put Noah out of his misery and he was a good guy. He gets to go to paradise eventually. Isn't that what it's all about? You're saying for him, to him, all this stuff. Right? He gets a good deal. They get a good deal. Well, they don't get a good deal. They, get, they, get, they, get, they drown. Right? But he gets a good deal. He gets to go to heaven. No! Because, because what, what, what's, what's Noah's purpose in this universe? What do we say? It's all for him, right? So his, his purpose is to be in, an ancestor of Christ. Like, look, the simple question to why in the Old Testament is to bring us St. Mary, to bring us Christ for our salvation. Like, that's oversimplified, but that's basically the bottom line of everything that happens before Jesus is to bring us Jesus so he can save us. He can restore us, right? He can bring us back to our original image and all of that. In, this, in Psalm 106, the text is really small, but it says that they were, you know, they were sacrificing their children as burnt Offerings. This was what the Canaanites were doing, the, the, the people that God evicted out of the promised land. Like when the Israelites left Egypt and wandered around for 40 years and came to the promised land, they didn't find it empty. It was inhabited, but God evicted a whole bunch of people. And most of it, not most of it, most of it was by war, twice by genocide. Twice by genocide. How can God do that? Not advocating genocide in our day and age I'm simply offering an explanation of maybe why God what he was doing these were people who worshipped their gods with child sacrifice and it wasn't a quick and easy death no they would offer their child to be burned alive now what is more traumatic to be brought by your own parents, your own bread, you know, flesh and blood, and burned alive, and you people get burned alive, they don't they don't die in a second, you know? 
They, they, they don't lose their vision in a second. They can see, they can see mommy and daddy standing outside the fire, dancing around, and the, the prostitution was a lot of these, and, and a lot of these worship things too, and so they're prostituting themselves, and they're doing their thing, while their children can see them, and they're crying, mommy, daddy, in the fire. Evil? You want to talk about evil? There was evil. There was evil. There was a lot of evil. There was a lot of evil. Job. Job is talking to God and he just, he, Job doesn't know what to do with himself. Right? And he says to God, and, and this was in the readings today in Job 23, he says, My complaint today, this is from the Living Bible, it's a, a paraphrase to make it a little bit easier to understand for all of us and you know less flowery words. My complaint today is still bitter. One, uh, and my punishment are far more severe than my fault deserves. Oh, that I knew where to find God, that I could go to His throne and talk to Him there. I would tell Him about my side of the story and listen to His reply and understand what He wants. I want to go to talk. I, 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 I want to, you know, I want to talk to the manager. You know, I want to talk to the supervisor. I want to knock on his door and I want to tell him. I want to tell him, okay, you know one side of the story. I want to tell you the other side of the story. What's the side of the story you want to tell him, Job? What's the side of the story you want to tell him? In the next chapter, he says, Why doesn't God open the court and listen to my case? Why must the godly wait for him in vain? For a crime wave has engulfed us. Landmarks are moved, flocks of the sheep are stolen, donkeys of the poor and the fatherless are taken. Like the poor and the fatherless, the poor and the orphans, they have nothing. And people are robbing them of the one thing they had. When God wanted to convict David in his heart of his sin with Bathsheba, he sent him Nathan. Nathan told him a story. He told him, you know, there's a man in your kingdom. David said, I'm listening. So there's a man in your kingdom who's very rich. He has lots of flocks and lots of herds and so on. And his neighbor is this poor little man who has one goat. And he really loves the goat and the goat really loves him. And all day he takes the goat and he feeds it from his hand. You know, goats are not like sheep. Goats are go-getters. They're, 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 sheep aren't so smart. But goats, are, they're, they, they know what's in it for them and they can go get it, you know? But he doesn't, he doesn't wait for the, sheep, the goat to go get it. He feeds it from his hand. He loves the goat so much. And then he brings the goat home. And then they sit together at the dinner table. He eats his dinner and the goat, I don't know, watches him or something. I don't know what a goat does at a dinner table, right? And then they go to bed together and he cuddles the goat and the goat cuddles him. And then one day there, his rich farmer neighbor had a guest visiting him. And he saw the guy next door with the goat. And he thought to himself, why should I kill one of my flocks? I'll take his goat. So he took his goat, he slaughtered it, and he offered it as dinner for his guest. Day King David was outraged. Outraged. He said that man should die, and all his family should be burned, and all his belongings. King David had a heart like God's. He had enormous compassion. He could feel the love of that man that he had for his one only goat. He told him, you are the man. Your neighbor, Uriah the Hittite, had one wife. How many do you have? And you had him killed, slept with him, got her pregnant. Now you're covering it up. You put your whole army at risk, the whole front lines. Like he, 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 he ordered the commander, put Uriah in the front lines, the wife of the guy, the wife of the woman that he, that he cheated with. 
put him in the front lines, go into the hottest battle and retreat. Have the whole army retreat. So who died? Uriah the Hittite died. Who else? Well, all the front lines. Like not just Uriah, like adultery and multiple murders, misuse of authority, the list goes on. You know what David's words are? I have sinned. You know what Nathan's words are? And God has taken away your sin. That's why we see that David was, had a heart like God's. No stories, no excuses, no explanations, no, I have sinned. You see how gracious God is? And God has taken away your sin. Easy like that. You confess, God takes it away. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Job goes on and on and on about the horrors that, that he's witnessing. He's not just saying all that I've gone through, right? He lists all the things he's gone through, but all the things other people have gone through. Our souls cry out. They cry out. And in the Psalms today that we read in the, before the Gospels, our souls are crying out with, with the victims of these evils. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. God, I don't know how much, like Job, I don't know how much longer I can hang in there waiting for you to show up on the scene, waiting for you to do something. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. The pit here is like hell, you know? Like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do this, God, right? And the next says, our, our God comes and will, and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. We start to see if God comes and when he comes, he's going to come. He's not going to be silent forever. And he'll come with a fire and rage. What kind of rage? We'll see. You see, God's mercy is justice. It's unmerciful to to not apply justice. But the justice that God applies is not Judge Judy, okay? It's not Judge Judy. I don't have anything against Judge Judy, but you know what I mean. It's not sitting on a... And then, because what, what's the most that Judge Judy can do? She can lock him up or capital punishment or whatever, you know? But she can't make somebody good. She, you know, the judge can, can punish, can confine, but they can't change the nature of the person. God is not like that. How do we understand this wrath of God, this rage? You know, Marina alluded to it. The readings, of course, speak about it, right? And it's scary, all this rage, all this day of the Lord stuff and His coming and He's coming to judge the earth. You can understand it like this. Remember the days of Moses. Moses is wandering around in the desert, meets God in the fiery bush, goes back to Pharaoh, tells him, let my people go. Pharaoh says, fat chance. Moses was prepared. He told God, God, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. Pharaoh is the emperor of the universe, is, the, is the, the king of the superpower of their time, and was thought to be by most and all, and Pharaoh himself, a deity himself. Like, he is God in the flesh. Why is he going to listen to me? 
So God gave Moses a few tricks up his sleeve. He told him, look, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. He goes and he strikes the Nile River. And the Nile River turns to blood. And the Egyptians wail because... If you know anything about Egypt, it only has one water source and it's called the Nile, right? And without water, people die, right? So when the water became blood, what happened? All the fish died and they started to stink and it was horrific. This is all written in scripture, so I didn't invent this, right? Now what's very interesting is it's also written that the Israelites rejoiced. Now, but hold on a second, Father John. Don't the Israelites live in Egypt? Yes. Don't they have only one water source just as much as the Egyptians do? Yes. So why were they rejoicing? Because they knew that their salvation was near. They knew that Pharaoh can't hold out for forever. You know, like they've got water in some water pots. They've been keeping it for this. They've been keeping it for that. You know, whatever uses, you know, you have water in your water bottle, but it's not going to last forever, your water bottle. And eventually... You're going to get thirsty enough and you're going to cave. So the Israelites rejoiced. They were thirsty, just as thirsty as the Egyptians were. But they rejoiced. What's the difference? Egyptians are thirsty, Israelites are thirsty. And if you read carefully, you'll find that when the the Israelites left Egypt, when they went out in the Exodus, actually a whole bunch of Egyptians went with them. And they called them the mixed multitude. A whole bunch of them went with them because they got convinced. They got convinced that these folks are onto something, right? Which is the first, you know, indications, very clear indications that God had not chosen a chosen people. God has chosen those who choose Him. The Israelites rejoiced because this action showed that their salvation is near. The Egyptians called it anger and wrath of God. The Israelites called it a sign of deliverance. And you find most of the Psalms today had the word deliver. You are my deliverance. You are my deliverer. You will deliver me. You will not delay. Look at Lot. Lot lived in Sodom. God tells Abraham... That city, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're, they're, they're... God says to himself, he says, how can I do this without discussing it with my friend Abraham? So he goes to discuss this with his friend Abraham. What does he discuss with him? Sodom. God tells, God tells Abraham, Sodom is completely evil. Abraham starts bargaining with God because he knows this. He knows his nephew lives there. So he says, well, God, now, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? God says, certainly not. He says, so if there were 50 righteous, would you destroy them with the wicked? God says, certainly not. For 50 righteous, I will spare the city. In the lives of the saints, like St. Paul the hermit, like the icon, the last icon on the right there is St. Anthony. And in the bottom left corner, you see St. Anthony and St. Paul the hermit. Okay, So the guy with, with St. Anthony. When, when he died... When St. Karas died, St. Um, um, Cyrus died, uh, these are hermits and anchorites in the desert. When St. Mary of Egypt died, it, they, all of these saints and others that are not coming to my recollection in this moment, it was said of them, God said, I have had mercy on the earth because of the prayers of so-and-so. Otherwise, I would have ended it long ago. 
So God says about Sodom, if there were 50 righteous, I'd spare the city. Good and wicked together, I would spare them. What about this 40 righteous God, Abraham is thinking. He starts bargaining with God. 20? 10? How about 5? How big was Lot's family? 4. Didn't make the cut, right? Three angels visited Abraham. One of them is chatting away with him. The other two go down to Sodom. They go down to Sodom. Who sees, who sees strangers in this town? Lot does. Lot was, a, Lot was a good guy, although very susceptible to bad influences, right? Even his own daughters who had an incestuous relationship with him. It wasn't his idea and he didn't approve of it, but they got him drunk and he didn't say no. Anyways, so Lot's not a terrible guy. You see, like... Like, if I describe anybody like that, you think they're a horrible person. God says, God speaks about Lot. See, look at how God is going to speak about Lot. He speaks about him as righteous. He sends the two angels. The two angels go down. The polite thing, the honorable thing to do was to welcome strangers. So that they come into the city and, they, and he welcomes them into his home. He washes their feet. They have dinner and this and that. And then there's like banging on the door. And Lot tell, screams through the door. He says, look, go away. Well, Lot, I mean, that's no way to talk to people. Yeah, what were they saying through the door? They were saying, send us out these two strangers that we may know them carnally. They wanted to rape the angels. They wanted to rape. There was new, there was new meat. There was new meat, and they wanted in on it. There's no... Are there any children back there? I don't know what the polite term is for a group rape. Group rape the angels. That was Sodom. What does it see? What does it say about Lot? In Second Peter, it says, Saint Peter's trying to say, look, God is not gonna, God is not gonna let this go. He's not gonna let this go. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward will live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing the lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for that day of judgment. That's why, that's why, that's what's happening today. Jesus is saying, we're at two readings of Jesus' second coming. We read, and in one of them it says, it says, uh, you know, and, and, and remember what was written in the book of Daniel. So we read in one of the prophecies was written in the book of Daniel about the day of the Lord, that he's coming in a flood, in a flood to judge, to discern, to cut between the good and the bad, to separate the sheep and the goats, to make that separation. So this injustice and madness can end. It's grace. God doesn't owe us nothing. God can very well just ignore our universe and let us carry on living in this, in this horrific depravity. 
He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a second chance. But he does. In the Psalms it says, Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in wrath and fire shall devour them. If you were the family or friend of, of one of the victims of these horrors, you would, you, would probably, you, know, you would probably read this with sympathy, right? We need to go back to who's on the throne. What's this all about? Is it about God getting justice for me? Or is it about God justifying, realigning, making perfect for His glory? That's what it's about. What about you and what about me? Because you know what? I'm not perfect. So have I also made myself an enemy of God? Father John, is that what's going to happen to me? Right? I mean, and it's not just me. St. Paul says in Romans 7, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. So I am constantly tormented. I want to do what's good, but I don't do it. And I find myself drawn to do things that are not good, and I don't want to do them, but I end up doing them, right? And I'm like, I, I, I live in this, you know? I don't know if you do, but I live in this, right? And I want to ask you a question. Is that not injustice to my soul? Like there's this tiny little righteous soul that lives inside each one of us who is oppressed who is oppressed by these desires do I want to do the double take? no I want to be faithful to my wife do I want to be covetous and look at what other people have and compare myself to them? no I don't I want to just love them for who they are but I don't I curse them in my head for what they have and what I don't have right? do I want to judge people in my head? no I just want to love them but I judge them and this person said this and this person said that and then I don't know what to do with it so what do I do? I vent and then that turns into gossip and then that turns into rumors and then that turns into do I, do I love this? I don't I hate it I hate it. Inside me, there's a little Noah. There's a teeny weeny, eeny weeny little Noah. And he's oppressed. He's oppressed by all these desires and all these that, are, that I feel are foreign to me. But I still do them. St. Paul continues. He says, In the law of God, according to the in the things that God says. I do, but I don't do them. I delight in Jesus when He says, judge not that you may not be judged. Look at the plank in your own eye before you start picking the speck out of somebody else's. I delight in that. But dude, I am the speck finder. All I see is specks. I got speck glasses on. And I can't see the plank in my own eye. It makes so much sense. I just don't do it. And it's killing me. It's killing my little Noah. It's killing my little Lot. It's killing my little guy inside. The little remnant that's left, that's still righteous. It's killing him. So I see that there's a, the law of my mind 
is bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Is this not injustice? Will I have to live forever in this battle between the little angel and the little devil on my shoulders? Will, will that little devil just not go away at some point? The habitual and repetitive sins that I keep falling into, will I never be delivered of them? Is there no deliverance? I want, I beg, I promise you, I want deliverance. I am oppressed just as much as Lot was. Jesus says in the gospel of the 11th hour, the gospel of the last gospel this morning, first he talks about the parable of the talents. God gave you talents. And he's going to expect good on his money. Not money, everything. Then after that, he goes on to tell another parable. That in the end of times, the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne, the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. See, the problem is, is that I see in me that I'm not a sheep because I've got lots of goat. But I'm not all goat. I've got some sheep. But it's all mixed in together. It's all mixed in together. I have like multiple personality disorder. I can't get it straight. I don't know who I am. One day I'm this, one day I'm a Jekyll and Hyde. Jesus is going to come and separate out the sheep from the goats. And the sheep get rewarded forever and the goats don't. When we hear, and God will sit on his throne and judge, we oftentimes get, like when I, you know, Google image, God sits on his throne. I get this. Big Jesus, big throne, big crown, lots of gold, you know, which is not wrong. But this is never going to be seen on this earth, which we talked a lot about yesterday. Because this earth will have dissolved like snow, will have melted with fervent heat by the time we see that. Not to say that that doesn't coexist with our earth, just that earth as we know it won't be by the time I get to see that. So what about this Jesus on his throne? Where's Jesus' throne on earth, Abuna? Remember, the, the, the king goes up to his throne to judge, to render justice. And he holds the scepter in his hand and he, he, he judges. He, you know, it's, it's, you, you, okay, these two people are fighting over money, land, whatever. Okay, you, were, you did right. You should pay. And he points with his scepter and he renders justice with his scepter. The scepter is his rule, what, he's, what he rules by. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus' throne on earth? This morning, that gospel that we read at the 11th hour ended with Jesus saying this. 
Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the psalm that we read, the psalm that we read about Jesus prophesying his, the crucifixion for the first time is called, Your throne, O Lord, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This, this is the throne of God on earth. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all nations to myself. Lifted up where? On a high and mighty throne like the one with the clouds and the gold and the... Well, when are you going to get lifted up? This is when he was lifted up. This is where he is lifted up. What does that mean? His throne is the cross. How is the cross his throne? Because it's from where he rules. How does that make sense? He didn't rule on the cross. He, he, got, he got schooled on the cross. You know, he got flogged and wounded and beaten and, you know, more than me, right? On the cross. How, 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 did he, how does he rule on the cross? You see, his rule is a ruling of love. And when I stand in front of the cross and I see the fullness of his love for me, and I see my life, and I put the two in the balance, I find that what Jesus has done for me, let alone Son of God, okay? If somebody, just some random human being, did this for you, okay? Not the king of the creator of the universe, who knew you before even time began, and he knew your name. Not somebody who loves you that much. Just any random walk passerby, someone you've never met before, dies for you and dies for you like this. How much would you owe them? Now, how does my life sit in the balance? You know, remember those scales? How does my life sit in the balance? When I look at my life, what have I done? What, have I, what do I have to show for the years of my life? When I compare it to this, to this love, this isn't, this isn't to guilt you or me, but it's to be a wake-up call that one day all of us are going to be in the flood of Noah, in the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire of His love. All of us are going to have the opportunity of, of redemption, to be that remnant which is redeemed. In his forbearance, God had passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you believe in this, the love of Jesus, if you believe in this, your life can't be the same. It changes our nature. It changes, he changes who, he changes who we are. 